Welcome to the New Life Podcast. We are a church in Masson, Ohio, and our goal is to let everyone know that God can give them new life. So whether you are local to our area or you are just tuning in for some encouragement today, I pray that this episode will bless and propel you forward to live that life that God has called you to live. In the house of the Lord today, amen. I love the way our services are set up because it's in these deep worship moments we bring the word and we receive that word. This is still part of the, this is the whole plan of the service right here. And now we receive it. I want to give thanks today to just a couple of people. We'll start with my pastor and bishop for this opportunity. I love you very much, both of you. My amazing family, my wife, who's here today, and I'm so thankful for her. Sometimes she doesn't get to hear me because we're usually doing different things, but I'm glad she gets to be in here today. And um, God has really, really been dealing with me this week about matters of the heart. And we've heard a couple of incredible lessons. I look forward to hearing Brother Daniel's here soon, but we heard Brother Goblin last week, Brother Austin on Wednesday, both of whom speaking of the time and age in which we live and the sense of urgency that should be prevalent in the way we go about not just our secular work but the way we go about doing God's work there should be a sense of urgency and so this week I was praying about that and, and, and God dealt with me about a matter of the heart what is the state of our heart we cannot do God's work effectively if our hearts are not right. And he, he needs all of us working together right now. He needs all of us. Amen. So if you turn with me quickly to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 16, we're going to read just a couple of verses starting at 1. 1 Samuel 16. I was given a threat today because my Wife, while I was at home studying yesterday, finishing this up, took my daughter to, took our daughter, my daughter, my, our daughter, to uh, this special event they have where you can be a park ranger for a day, and they got to like fish and do fun things like that. Well, she ended up having to bait a hook, which is not her most fun thing to do. Lauren was with them and sent me pictures, and I got quite a laugh out of that. So she said, if this sermon is not one of the best you've ever preached, we're going to have an issue. So, so thanks for that added pressure. I appreciate that. But we, I'll do my best to live up to your baiting a hook situation. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill thine horn with oil, and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me, I have provided myself, a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you, and say, I am come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint unto me him which I name, whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that 
which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and they said, Comest thou peaceably? And he said, Yes, peaceably, I am come to sacrifice unto the Lord. Sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he sanctified Jesse and his sons, and called them to the sacrifice. And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab, and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we're beyond grateful for the presence we already feel today. I pray you anoint your man of God today as I bring forth this word, an already anointed word. Let it take root in our lives, God, and be cast into fertile soil so that we can be doers and not just hearers only. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. Amen. You can be seated. It is practically impossible to predict whom God is going to greatly use. We, we might see a teenager, an edge youth, a child, and ignite kids, maybe even the nursery. We watch them grow up, and they end up having some possible gifts and abilities. And we, someone might say, well, they're going to be an awesome whatever. You know, fill in the blank. We do it all the time. But the truth of the matter is, none of us have any clue as to what God might choose to do through somebody. It might be far, he might have a far greater plan than their current abilities and, and measurable gifts that we can see in front of us. And today we focus in on this shepherd boy who from the looks of it only had certain abilities and gifts, but later became Israel's most famous king. In society today, there are usually two or three ways in which we evaluate people, and one of the main ways is their appearance. James Dobson actually says that appearance is the gold coin of human worth. Now, those of us who are good-looking, look to your neighbor and say, that's you, okay? Striking in appearance, we don't have an issue with this, right? It's quite possible we have some advantages over others. <laughs> now, I'm being, I'm being goofy, but in all seriousness, it is societally proven that good-looking, whatever that category means, people get more breaks in life. And people give them the benefit of the doubt. I actually read that convicted criminals have been exonerated and proclaimed innocent despite the evidence, all because of good looks. And on the flip side uglier convict's luck has gone the other way, even if the evidence was strong in support of them. It's unfortunate, it's silly, but appearance is a big deal in the world today. Young women deal with an era of time here where beauty is so exaggerated and overemphasized, and oftentimes it turns out to be a curse because they're often misused because of their beauty. It's the age in which we live. It just is. Beauty good looks, appealing personality, maybe, all overly important. The silver coin of human worth is intelligence. You can get by these days looking very ordinary, as long as maybe you're a whiz kid. 
Maybe you're good at computers. Maybe you can play an instrument like nobody else in the band. Maybe you have some gifts that set you apart. You're very fortunate because that gift might get you the recognition that we all crave. Okay? But if you lack any of that, and maybe you were brought up in a home where there was favoritism, and honestly, you know, I believe there's a little bit of that in all of us at times, sometimes unrecognized. I know kids are not, our kids are not our favorite at times. <laughs> and, and sometimes even when we try to be, like we work hard to be incredibly fair, so much that we're measuring the juice we pour in the glasses. So it's, it's still difficult to always be fair. And, and people, especially children, sorry, I'm going to get, get teacher on you here a little bit, especially kids can tell when they're not favored, when they're not currently blessed. And it's not a great feeling, especially when it happens regularly. Okay? Now, I truly believe that description I just gave is part of the biography of David. David was the unblessed child in Jesse's family. And it's because of that that he experienced a lot of highs and lows. He had emotional difficulties that I don't know if he ever truly got over. David was always on a roller coaster, some days super enthusiastic. Sometimes, even within the same psalm, he would go from a time of exhilaration and praise to the depths. He, you know, he spent a lot of time, and sometimes it was the other way around, too. You know, he spent a lot of time in, this, in the pit of depression trying to work his way out. And, uh, but in the midst of all of this turbulence and roller coaster ride in David's emotion, he was always looking for God. That's the key. And I think it's just safe to say today that David was a very, very human individual. Now, unfortunately, a lot of preachers today will, will uh, paint him to be extraordinary. You know, a lot of unchurched even know David. Okay? We put him in a glass case. We've said that his life has been almost perfect except for the fact that he committed adultery and murder. But that isn't true. David had many, many failures. At one point... The Ignite Kids just learned about this one. At one point, he joins the Philistine army and allows spit to run down his beard, pretending he's insane. Doesn't sound very kingly to me. But that's why I love David. He's human. He's human. And because of all this emotional turbulence, because of the emotional turbulence, he kept pursuing God. Some might say God used David in spite of his weaknesses. I challenged that this morning, today, this morning, yeah, to tell you that I believe God used David because of his circumstances, okay? It pushed him closer to God, okay? And he made that decision, he made that choice that when I'm in these situations, even if it's a stupid decision I made, I'm still going to allow it to push me closer to God. I know that God can still use me. I know what it feels to have a forgiven heart. I know he's a forgiving God, so I'm not going to let this set me back. I'm going to keep trying to move forward. Because just because you made a mistake doesn't mean the state of your heart is completely messed up. It's the state of your heart. Okay? Um, so we're going to dig in. We'll take a closer look this morning at 1 Samuel 16, where David is called out of the sheepfold as a shepherd and ends up with this responsibility of carrying the burden of knowing that he's a king in waiting. 
now. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to follow along. I know media is going to do their best as well. Thank you. The chapter starts, the Lord is telling Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel responds and says, how can I go? Because when Saul hears of this, he will kill me. So the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite, there's a strategy here, and invite Jesse and his sons to the sacrifice and there I will show you what to do. I will anoint the one whom I have chosen for myself. Now Saul, Saul at this time was paranoid already. So Samuel doesn't even want to be known as having gone to Bethlehem to try to find a king. He's afraid that Saul will hear news of that. So God tells him to take this heifer with him and just offer the sacrifice, which was not dishonest, because he did offer the sacrifice. The real purpose of the mission was not Saul's business. Okay, Samuel was just concealing the truth from him. Many of us have done this. Honey, I'll go do those errands for you. I have to go out anyway. What you're concealing is that you really want a Starbucks run because you've been craving one all day. Conce- concealing the truth, okay? For my personal life, every time we go to the doctor, Kenna asks, is there going to be a shot? Every time. And I will say, without saying yes or no, I will say, it's just a checkup, honey, nothing to worry about. Knowing full well she more than likely has a shot coming up. Okay? Concealing the truth to hide those extreme emotions that come along with knowing the shot is on the way, okay? And of, of course, then I get an earful on the way home, Daddy, you said. And, and if I put myself in her shoes, I'd probably be upset too. It's the same concept as leaving your lights on when you leave your home, giving the false impression that you're at home when you aren't. Concealing the truth. That's what Samuel did here. It's not a lie because he did go to sacrifice, but there was another mission in mind. And God tells him to take the heifer and offer it so that you are speaking truthfully, and then you invite Jesse's sons, and I will show you who is going to be the next king. So Jesse's sons come to Bethlehem, and in verse 5, we begin to see a crowd gather, a congregation kind of gather, because remember, Samuel is acting as circuit judge. So, you know, he shows up, there's some concern. People are kind of afraid. Maybe, they were in, maybe there's some trouble going on. So a crowd gathers, and he has to say, I'm coming in peace. Everything's okay. I've, I've just come to sacrifice to the Lord, consecrate yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And then the selection process began. Many of you know this story. So let's get back in the word. Then it came about, when they entered, he looked at Eliab, first in line, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. There are seven sons here, eight in all. One of them hasn't come to the interview yet. But the first one was Eliab, the firstborn. And he walks before Samuel, Samuel has no resume, 
no references, no interviews that he was told to conduct. All he's doing is looking at appearance. That's all he's doing. That gold coin of human worth. The first thing we see when we meet someone new, the first impression is the appearance. Okay? And that's all Samuel really could do under those conditions. So Eliab walks before him undoubtedly with a very pronounced step and possibly a big club, a spear maybe, and he looks very, very kingly. Very. So of course Samuel thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Judging a book by its cover. How often have we thought that someone is going to be a certain way and then we discover weaknesses and flaws and it's disappointing because you didn't see that coming based on your initial judgment. So this could quite possibly be the feeling Samuel has here, thinking he's doing God's will with Eliab and so he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. It would make sense as the firstborn. Okay, job done, easy, firstborn. Oh, to be a firstborn. In my case, the firstborn of a firstborn. Love you, Mom. Are there any firstborns in the house today? Any can I get an amen from some firstborns in the house? Okay. You know, there are certain traits that follow being a firstborn. And I was intrigued about this during my study this week, so I looked some up, and some of us will connect with these. Competitive, self-confident, strong-willed, oftentimes suspicious, hey now, driven, trying to prove something. That's probably my worst. Sorry, honey. Uh, commitment to their vocation, mostly so people can notice how hard of a worker they are. Ouch. Probably should have sifted through these before I wrote them all down. Okay. <laughs> so now that I'm cut deep as a firstborn, we're going to move on. Actually, in research, I did find, I don't believe every research that comes up. I just thought it was interesting. But a lot of firstborns have become presidents or college presidents. Firstborns make excellent leaders because of their strength and their drivenness. But in this instance, with Eliab, with the obvious choice by society's standards, the Lord says no. And then in verse 7, God gives specific reasoning to Samuel when he said, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Another ouch. Now, I'm sure Samuel was wise enough in that moment to not convey vocally to Eliab and Jesse what he just heard from the Lord. That was more, probably more internal, not external. But nevertheless, Eliab does know and feel the sting of rejection that day. He's not going to be the one for whom Samuel has come. So move on. What about Abinadab? Verse 8, Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And Samuel says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. The secondborn is also rejected. Secondborns? Anyone? Yeah, second born? <laughs> Hearty amens from the second borns. Okay, there we go. Research shows second borns are usually much more, much more compliant in nature. I may have to respectfully disagree with that one. <laughs> because, 
God didn't, God didn't want him either. And then apparently the thirdborn, Shama, he passes by. Research shows that thirdborns are usually very compliant. Thirdborns, okay. All right. They're in the middle sometimes, sometimes, you know, some issues there, but the, the, neither has the Lord chosen this one. So all seven sons pass by Samuel, and each one is rejected of the Lord. And more than likely, Samuel is starting to get a little confused. I mean, I would. God told him, God told him in the sons of Jesse, one of them will be anointed for the next king. All seven go by, and not one of them is selected by God for this position. Some confusion. And so, in verse 11, Samuel asks, are these all the children? And Jesse said, well, there remains yet the youngest. Pause. Because right here is the first hint that we have that David is not among the blessed children. He's not among the blessed. And David struggled because of this. He is the youngest. Behold, he is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. The Bible says he was ruddy. Okay, ruddy means a reddish color face, either from working really hard or being embarrassed or angry. He was a hard worker. So he was ruddy with beautiful eyes, a beautiful countenance, and a handsome appearance. That's what the Bible says. But apparently he not very kingly because he was not in that original line of brothers. And so the Lord, the Lord then said, Arise, anoint him. So Samuel took the oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of God came mightily upon David from that day forward. How will his family treat him now? Now that he is blessed. Verse 13 says this anointing was done in the midst of his brothers. In the midst of his brothers with eyes on him. How will they accept the exaltation of their youngest brother. What could we imagine that ceremony must have been like? Here's the runt of the family. Here's the one who is not well accepted by brothers or his, or his father, and he's the one who's brought, and he's the one who receives the honor. Now, we can definitely make some inferences from the text as to how he was treated. First big sign, he was sent back to herd in the sheep. He was sent right back to what he had previously been doing as the unblessed child, the least among them. I have to think that's how we feel sometimes going back to work on Monday morning. Reality check. After a powerful, life-changing service on Sunday, where we left with fresh anointing, freshly filled with his spirit, renewed and rekindled, but nothing on that side of my life has changed. Same old routine, same old issues to deal with. I feel like I was made a new creature in the presence of the Lord, but I'm going right back to what I had previously been doing. We've all been there. And, and let me tell you today, you, you may have been sent back to unchanged circumstances, but what has without a doubt been changed is you. David went back to shepherding the same flock, but he was now changed. He was changed. He goes back as royalty in waiting. 
He goes back heir apparent to the throne. He goes back anointed by God himself to do the work. Your Monday morning routine, your negatively charged work atmosphere, your hard labor does not negate the Holy Ghost experience that you have received. It does not negate it. Amen. It, it ends up having to be a mindset shift. It's a mindset shift for us because now that fresh anointing we receive should be shaping our actions and our work. It's the way in which you shift from life to life more abundant. Okay? It's the way we allow him to work in us and through us as a child of God. And just like David, yes, we're walking back into the same weekly routine, but now we're royalty. Now we're the apple of his eye. We're walking in favor. That ought to put a pep in our step. That ought to put some confidence in us. It ought to excite us. We might be doing the same thing, but we are changed by the power of God. Amen. Now, David did soon become King Saul's armor bearer, and he plays music for Saul as well, because in verse 14, uh, an evil spirit was troubling Saul. So David is already being used by God in new opportunities. And we'll talk more about that a little later on. But basically, this evil spirit would seize King Saul, which made him more paranoid, and the Lord used the playing of David's harp to give Saul some rest in his spirit from struggling with this demon. And quite possibly rest from a few other issues too, because there were some ungodly things in Saul's heart. So David does both jobs, shepherd and armor bearer, running from taking care of the sheep to Saul's court and back again. Because if there are going to be any kingly pronouncements, if there's going to be any kingly honor or treatment or respect, he certainly is not going to get it from his own family. Okay? He stayed in the presence of the king as much as possible, knowing that's where he belongs. That's what God has called me to do and anointed me to do. If we want to be consistently used by God to do his work this side of heaven, we have to stay connected with his presence as much as possible. It's praying without ceasing. It's having the mind of Christ. In his presence is where we belong. That's why it's a daily seek. It needs to be a daily seek. I might have to go to my secular job too, but I'm constantly running back to the king's court. I have to do both. I have to work both because I have to stay in the presence of the king. I have to stay. Then fast forward to four years later in chapter 17, verse 28. David is still running back and forth, taking care of the sheep. And he says in verse 26 in one of his trips, to the men who are standing around him looking at this giant they're scared of. He says, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the re reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? And if you look at verse 28, 17 and 28, it's Eliab. Here we go again, firstborns. His oldest brother heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger burned against David. And he said, why have you come down? With, who did you leave those sheep with? Okay. I know your insolence. I know the wickedness of your heart. You just came down to see the battle. That's Eliab telling him that. Now, only if you're somewhere later in the birth order in your family do you know the power of an angry older sibling. 
Yes, Derek, I'm self-reflecting, and you're welcome. <laughs> but seriously, some may know the hurt and sting of words from family and the pain that they cause. Family conflict is real. It's real. Being a teacher and having seen many different kinds of families and different kinds of family issues, I reflect a lot on this topic. And God's been dealing with me about families and what happens within them. So I love David's response here to his sibling. He says in verse 29, he says, what have I done now? <laughs> and I like to think there's a little hint of frustration and sarcasm. So a little extra boldness. What have I done now? What have I now done? It's just a question, Eliab. Calm down. Isn't there a cause? So he comes right back at Eliab with holy boldness and takes a stand for the cause, for Israel and for God. And believe it or not, at this point in Scripture, Eliab passes off the scene. We never hear from Eliab again. It's the end of Eliab. And I venture to believe that Eliab faced a tremendously important decision on that frustrating, shocking day as he and his brothers lined up in front of Samuel, fully expecting to be anointed heir apparent to the throne. As he watched David the youngest, the runt, who wasn't even invited. Eliab did one of two things. Either he decided to repent and submit to God and say, God, you've rejected me from being king, but that's okay. I'm willing to serve you whatever capacity you want. All that I ask is that I belong to you, and that in itself is a great privilege. Do as you want with me. He either did that or he died a bitter, angry, frustrated, unfulfilled, resentful man. He did one of those two. And it looks like, unfortunately, chapter 17 gives us enough evidence that it was the latter choice. Family conflict more than likely got the best of Eliab because of his choice and how to handle it. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. It's very difficult for those who have not been broken by God to accept success in the lives of others, especially in their own family. And, you know, this next statement is sad, but true. The family is sometimes the last to recognize that there is greatness in their midst. The family is sometimes the last to recognize that someone has been honored or someone is worthy of honor because the family, oftentimes with its own insecurities and dysfunctional relationships, finds itself unable to support those who God is greatly blessing because of resentment, anger, pecking order, among other things. What these brothers more than likely really wanted was to see David's crown taken and crushed into the dirt once and for all. So I feel like this point in the message needs something refreshing and encouraging. <laughs> so, and we do find that message of hope. We find that encouragement embedded in the midst of all of this. And it's the main point we need to get today. If you don't get anything else, I'll be upset. But if you don't get anything else, <laughs> this is what we need to understand. And it's hidden in plain sight in verse 7. And I know someone needs this today because... God lay them on my heart. So please listen. The refreshing message in all of this is 16 verse 7. When God told Samuel, don't look at appearance. 
or the height of stature. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks on the outward, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this message today is not necessarily fix your heart, although many of us need, we have to work on our heart every day. But this message today, what God laid on my heart, is for people who have made mistakes, and you're allowing those mistakes to mess with you so much that you're, you're moving away from what God wants you to do because you feel like you've made too many mistakes. The state of your heart has not changed. God still sees that you have a good heart, and your mistakes did not change that. Now, you, you will get advice today to help with heart changes. But the message is mostly for people who have made those mistakes but still have a good heart deep down inside. This is encouraging for you. David, the unblessed child, has a heart after God. Author Gary Smalley <clears throat> writes about family blessings, and in one of his writings, he mentions that there are those within many families who sense they are not blessed because they've never known the warmth of unconditional acceptance. And there may be those here today who have felt this within their own family. You don't feel worthy. You weren't raised in church. You weren't supported by family. But in the midst of all that, God is reaching out with 1 Samuel 16 and 7 and saying, man will look on the outward appearance. Parents can even judge their kids one way or another. But I look at your heart so why David? Why was David chosen? We can't give a complete answer to that because God's choices are just sovereign. <laughs> but I do believe that God worked in David's heart long before he was chosen, even though he was anointed at age 15. God was already at work in David's heart, preparing him to be king. And there was something about David that God loved. He said, David's a man after my own heart despite all of his faults, which were many. God knew the state of his heart. One might read David's story and wonder what God saw in him. David fell as much as he stood, stumbled as often as he conquered. He stared down Goliath, but had a completely different stare at Bathsheba. A man after God's own heart, that gives hope to all of us. We need David's story because these giants lurk in our neighborhoods. Giants of rejection and failure and revenge, they're everywhere. We have to face them, but we don't have to face them alone. We focus first and foremost on God. When David did that, when David focused on God, Goliath falls. When David did not do that, he falls. That's, that's his roller coaster. Yeah. We have to lift our eyes as giant slayers, okay? The same God who make a miracle out of, made a miracle out of David stands ready to make a miracle out of you, regardless of the past, okay? You have not messed up too much. You have not messed up too much. You are not too far gone. Just refocus. Just refocus. Deep down, your heart is right. Just refocus. Just refocus on him. So let's get a closer look at David's heart to help us today. First off, David was a shepherd, and he had a shepherd's heart. 
Psalms, the book of Psalms, 78 and 70. I think they have this one. It's a good one. I want you to see it. Psalms 78 and 70. It says, God also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. David, if I can entrust sheep to you, I can entrust my people to you. And in a future conversation, when David was talking to Saul, he said, Saul, one day I was out in the fields and a lion and a bear came. And they were going to get the sheep and I took care of the lion and the bear. I protected the sheep. Sheep can't write your resume. Sheep can't tell your story. He could have run and given a great excuse for it. And nobody would have blamed him for a run. He could have let those sheep go, but he risked his life for the sheep. God saw a shepherd's heart, a heart of integrity, and because of that, he felt comfortable giving him the responsibility to shepherd the people of Israel. A thousand years later, another shepherd is born in Bethlehem, city of David, a savior which is Christ the Lord. He is the chief shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. God is partial towards shepherds' hearts. See, the lessons David learned out there on the fields taking care of the sheep are the lessons that's going to help him become a king. God chose a shepherd's heart. And knowing this, knowing this information, puts the famous Psalm 23 in an even stronger light. When David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. In shepherd talk, lie down means they have eaten their fill. They would stand to eat, but when they would lie down, they are full. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He is my sustenance. He is bread for the hungry and water for the thirsty. Fill me up, God. Every day, fill me up. Sheep, sheep are frightened by rapidly running waters and will not drink from them. But my shepherd leads me beside still waters. This is the state of David's heart. A shepherd's rod and staff represent his presence, protection, and guidance to his sheep. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Even in the scariest, most tumultuous valleys in our lives, his presence, protection, and guidance are there with us. The rod and the staff of the good shepherd. And that was the state of David's heart as well. He also had a serving heart. If I say serving heart. Saul used him as an armor bearer in the palace, and yet he always went back with the sheep. He sometimes took care of them and then would run back to the palace back and forth. And then later on, when Saul was experiencing those demonic seizures, David came and played on the harp to calm the king. Serving heart. Now, it's going to be about 15 years or so until he officially becomes king. And during those 15 years, God uses Saul to kind of grind David down, wear him down. David will end up learning what to do when someone throws a spear at you. 
David will end up learning what happens when somebody hates you so much because of antagonism and jealousy that they would like to kill you and actually try to do it. David learns a lot of tough lessons during those 15 years. Because when David arose to become king, God didn't want another Saul on the throne. See, Saul was chosen by his appearance and height of stature. <laughs> he was taller than all the other men. Many times tall people give off that authoritative, commanding presence. And so God says, that was true of Saul, but I don't want it to be true of David. I'll take the last born. I'll take the unblessed child no one else thinks or cares about. I see his heart. I see his heart. David also had a forgiven heart. And I think that's one of the things we remember most about him. He struggled a great deal with guilt, especially after the Bathsheba incident. Now, after that incident, he did give us Psalm 51, which is a true cry of repentance. Have mercy upon me. Oh, God, I'm sinful. I'm awful. Ugh. Okay? But he also gave us Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my iniquity to you. My sin I did not hide and you forgave me the iniquity of my sin. David had to live with the consequences, but at the end of the day, he passionately loved God. And God knew the state of his heart. He was in many ways a troubled man. Actually, years later in the Psalms, David, we still find David pleading, Oh Lord, remember not the sins from my youth. <laughs> Why was this old man worried about sins during his youth? It's because David was constantly a man in process. He was a man in struggle. And there was this hole in his soul, this sense of unfulfillment, but it kept driving him to God. It kept pressing him toward the divine. David was not used in spite of his weaknesses. He was used mightily because of his weaknesses. I challenge you today. Find someone who is pursuing God at 100 miles an hour, a true worshiper, a true praiser, a prayer warrior, a mighty witnesser, and I will show you a person who's very often in emotional flux and turmoil because their only hope is God. That's David. The Lord looks at the heart. The Lord looked at his heart. What is the state of your heart? Not the state of your circumstances, not the state of your bank account, not the state of your health, the state of your heart. What does God see when he looks at your heart? Does he see deceit? Does he see all kinds of a different lifestyle unknown to anyone, a secret lifestyle of sin? Is that what he sees? Wouldn't we love to be able to pull everything away and see people's hearts? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could know where people stand before God and whether or not they are a good or bad person? But we don't. We can't. However, all things are open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God himself sees the part that we protect. God himself sees the part that we protect. Oftentimes, we take so much care of the outward appearance because that's what people see. But the inner heart that God sees is neglected. 
David knew that. So he would pray and say, oh God, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He knew what it was like to have God search his heart. David learned the difference between human evaluations and God evaluations. And maybe there are people today, you know, I'm sure there's a plethora of, of backgrounds and issues, maybe abusive families, verbal and physical. I want you to hear this preacher today. There's your abuser's evaluation of you, and then there's God's evaluation of you. Amen. To the frustrated mother who feels as though people judge the way they handle their family, there's a fake friend's evaluation of you, and then there's God's evaluation of you. To a distraught student who's constantly getting rough grades and getting punished at school, there's a teacher's evaluation of you, and there's God's evaluation of you. God does not see as man sees. You will not succumb to society's view of you because the good shepherd looks on your heart, which is entirely different. Entirely different. Psalms 27 and 10 gives us more proof of David's conflict within his own family because he said, my mother and my father forsake me, but the Lord will take me up. Broken home, disowned, misused, take advice from David. Within his rejection by his own family, he finds his soul driven toward God. Man looks on the outward. We do it all the time. We're constantly judging people constantly processing people we meet making our own judgment but God sees the heart and Proverbs tells us as a man thinketh in his heart so is he Jesus said it is from within the heart of man that proceeds evil thoughts, adultery, fornication thefts, covetousness, all of that comes from the heart which does not surprise me it does not surprise me that the man who was proclaimed to have a heart after God literally prayed create in me a clean heart, oh God, because that's the part that matters most to the Almighty. He had a shepherd's heart, he had a serving heart, a forgiven heart, but he also had a worshiping heart. Worshiping out of gratitude and gratefulness that God has an entirely different evaluation of him than anyone else. Stand today. What is the state of your heart? Are there a lot of closets and hidden places that you think God can't see? Newsflash, he can. So you might as well give him the key and let him unlock them all. See, 1 Samuel 16 and 7, the crux of my message today, God's message today, was written for misfits and outcasts. God uses them all. Moses ran from justice, but God used him. Jonah ran from God, but God used him. Rahab, Sarah, Lot, God used them all. Human eyes looked at David and saw a gangly teenager smelling like sheep. The Lord looks at him and says, arise, anoint him. This is the one. See, God saw what no one else saw. David took after God's heart because he stayed after God's heart. And in the end, that's all God wants or needs. Others might measure your waist size or wallet, but God examines your heart. And when he finds a heart set on him, he calls it and he claims it. Every head bowed, every eye closed.
listen, I know there's different kind of mess-ups in the room today, mistakes that vary across the board. But the one thing that needs to say similar is that you allow those mistakes to push you even closer to God. He will use you because of your mistakes if your heart is in the right place. He wants to anoint you for your workplace. He wants to anoint you for your school. He wants to anoint you for your family. You are the one, but what is the state of your heart? This altar was never closed. And there are some people here today that need to do some heart checks. Lord, you know the state of my heart. Examine it, Lord. Search me. Know my heart. Reveal to us what you see. I want to have a heart after you. This altar is open. Don't allow those mistakes and issues to completely overshadow what God wants to do in your life. He knows the state.